Welcome to the Storyform Podcast, where we journey together at the intersection of faith and story. I'm your host, Will Chenault, Soul Care Pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Jackson, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Let's get this conversation started. Hello, and welcome to the Storyform Podcast. Today, On the podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing a very special guest, Dr. Steve Hammond. Uh, Steve is one of our founding elders here at Fellowship. He's a physician in Jackson. Uh, More specifically, he's an OBGYN. And uh, as we were talking before we started recording, he has been uh, here in Jackson at the same place practicing for 41 years, which is a very rare thing. Steve has an incredibly powerful story uh, that I would like to talk with him about today. Steve, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here, Will. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So January is um, a month where the church has recognized the sanctity of human life. Um, this is a topic that's very personal for you, Steve, uh, so much so that you have written a book titled The Christian and Abortion, A Non-Negotiable Stance. And I want to talk to you today about this book and your own story. So let's just begin. For those who don't know you, what is your personal backstory that led you to write this book? Well, we could start at the beginning, Will. My mother was the spiritual leader of my home and introduced me to Jesus. She was when I I can remember back as early as four years of age. Uh, now, um, sin is for a, uh, for a four-year-old is kind of an abstract concept, you know, but she explained that to me and I learned a word back then that, uh, um, I guess for more, most four-year-olds probably don't, wouldn't know this word, but she introduced me to the word disobedience. Mm. Uh, you know, I love my mother and I wanted to please her, but like most four-year-olds, I would do things that were... <laughs> intentionally do things that she told me explicitly not to do. And, um, and when I was disobedient, uh, she would link that to the fact that that was my sin nature. Now, I didn't know what sin nature was, but I knew what disobedience was. And I knew there was always punishment for sin. And that led me to the, or led her to teach me about uh, God's plan to uh, redeem me from that sin. Um, and, um, so that, that sort of was the way I was introduced to it. Um, but like most, most, uh, of us, we, uh, you know, life gets in the way and you start, uh, as you grow up, uh, you're influenced by your peers as much as you are your home life. I had a very good home life. I was the middle of, of five children and, um, I, I really I was blessed uh, to know that I was going to be a physician early in life. That that was um, something I always had an eye on. Two of my mother and daddy's best friends were the founding uh, the founders of the Jackson Clinic. Doctor uh, Heron and Doctor Hubbard were both founders of the Jackson Clinic back in 1950, wow. and they spent a lot of time in our home. And I think that kind of imprinted on me a little bit. Uh, but I was fascinated by. Uh, uh, we go get our shots and things, and I just was fascinated by by medicine. So I guess even at uh, as a preteen, I was 
interested in, in, uh, in the things of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I shared with you earlier, <clears throat> one of the things I guess I've been, I've fought with all my life is attention deficit disorder. And I, they didn't diagnose that 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, being a physician, I know that's what I had. My mother would always joke and say, Steve, you've got a one-track mind. Mm. <laughs> and she didn't know how right she was. Uh, she was not educated in medicine, but she probably was right on with that. Mm-hmm. But it really made um, study difficult for me. I, I think I struggled with, with learning early on. And by the time I got to medical school, as you know, every step I made from high school to college uh, I was introduced with people that were smarter than I was, so I had to work harder and harder. And each step along the way from high school to college and from college on to medical school, it was more and more difficult for me. And medical school was quite a challenge. There's, as you know, volumes and volumes of things to memorize, and that was hard for me. Um, but I, te- I, I paint that story a little bit uh, to let you know that that was one of the first failings I think I had was I had a lot of pride in the fact that I had accomplished something and didn't really realize that God was walking along beside me, opening doors, and I did a I did some really bonehead things along the way that could have really jeopardized my ability to become a physician to achieve my dream. Uh, but he kept me out of... Um, some of those pitfalls along the way. So I graduated from medical school. I was nobody in my family. Well, my sister's husband was uh, a physician, uh, Dr. Russell Robbins. He passed away a few years ago. He was at the Jackson Clinic prior to my coming here. Um, but he was the only person in our family that was actually involved in medicine. Um, so I was sort of a pioneer in that respect. My two younger brothers, uh, later followed me and became physicians. Um, and uh, so I, I think that was my the first real uh, sinful thing that I can remember that really grabbed a hold of me was that uh, I was extremely proud of what, who I was and what I'd accomplished and had this, um, I really shut God out of the picture. Um and uh, about halfway through medical school, and you were talking about this earlier, that uh, January 1973, the Supreme Court passed this the um, uh, Roe versus Wade decision down. And uh, I was in medical school. There was no 24-7 news back then. Uh, and, of course, as I mentioned, my nose was in the books. I, I didn't really realize what was going on politically in the country. But we got word of this uh, happening through our professors in medical school, and we're sort of in, uh, informed or taught that uh, this was a breakthrough in uh, allowing women to have the right to uh, terminate a pregnancy uh, if it didn't fit their lifestyle. And of course, you know, we just come out of the 60s, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, it was all about me, all about uh, personal empowerment and all of that kind of thing then. And that we were being held back by uh, the, um, our, what do you want to call it, <laughs> the, the moral laws that were governing our, our lives. Sure. That was a, a restraint rather than right. a push, holding us back rather than being a proper restraint. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I became a real advocate for abortion. And that's part of the story, the thing I talk about in the book. 
uh, an advocate for it. Um, I, of course, wasn't introduced to abortion per se in medical school or during my internship, but I can distinctly remember having conversations with my peers. And uh, those who opposed abortion, uh, I looked at as being backwards and uh, they were goofy or whatever other adjective you want to put in front of their name. I, I, I was basically a proponent of abortion, and I supported a woman's right to choose I, and I, under the, all of the same kind of things that you hear talked about today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, uh, the back story. Now, um, if you want me to pick up then, I, did, I decided I wanted to do OBGYN. It was uh, fascinating to me, bringing life into the world. <laughs> and I, I, that's one of the curiosities of, of uh, obstetrics and gynecology today. On the one hand, we do everything we can to make pregnancy safer and deliver healthy babies and to um, get women through that, that uh, time of their life uh, without incident. And on the other hand, we're destroying the life. Mm. Uh, and mm-hmm. those that just it's not convenient or for whatever reason. Um, so I, I, I fin- finished medical school and, and uh, internship and went to Augusta, Georgia to do my residency. And the fourth month of my residency, I was on a Planned Parenthood rotation. And that's when I was introduced to abortion. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I uh, watched one being done. I, we had I had a great, uh, great I should say, a very persuasive professor who was helping me learn how to do this and taught me. And um, so I, uh, I I did my first abortion shortly after that. And actually, then uh, as part of my rotation was doing them. People ask me, they say, you know, you could. You, were you forced to do this as part of your training? You know, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. you can excuse that. No, I could have opted out. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned earlier, I was an advocate, uh, pro, pro-abortion, pro-choice advocate. And um, I uh, I went on over the next year and a half, and uh, and the book talks about I'd probably perform somewhere around uh, maybe over 700 abortions in that next year and a half. Uh, these were for money, uh, moonlighting. And um, uh, the book talks about a, a time that happened. And, I, you know, I was, I think there was part of me that was saying, what's, what's wrong with this? As, as I would, part of what you do as an abortionist is um, when you're finished, you put the pieces of the baby back together again. Uh, I know people listening to this are going to think this is awful, but it's what goes on behind the curtain, folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about abortion as a an abstract concept, and it's not an abstract concept. It's a reality. It's a truth. Um, this is not a, a a ball of cells that's terminated. It's a human being, and if <laughs> you don't have to be medically trained to look at uh, the pieces of the baby there to know what you're what you've just destroyed. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that I could have done that for a year and a half with the background I've told you about, you know, knowing Jesus as my Savior and that uh, 
what sin was and all of that, that I could perform that. But I, I likened it to a, a pathologist doing an autopsy. You know, the life's gone from the corpse, but and he's cutting it open and doing it without much passion, knowing that maybe a week before that person was walking around mm-hmm. <laughs> alive. But anyway, I would, I, I would put those pieces of baby back together again to make sure all the pieces had been removed. And then uh, there was a Saturday morning when um, we did a, abortions at Planned Parenthood in Augusta, and uh, those abortions were a little easier <clears throat> to do. They were tec- not technically easier, but they had been uh, screened the night before, so a lot of what I had to do before the abortion was done by a faculty member the day before, and they would... Um, uh, the patient, patients would come in that morning prepared for the abortion. And uh, the last one I did that Saturday morning was the, the faculty member had made a terrible mistake, and this little girl was much further along in her pregnancy than, than we thought. And uh, I started the procedure, and I knew something was wrong in the beginning. Normally you have a, a few tablespoons of amniotic fluid come through the cannula and there was a pint and then a quart and then more amniotic fluid. This was like a newborn amniotic fluid, uh, that amount. And then the baby kicked me. And I, I, I say that, not, not, I mean, my son Stephen was um, a year old at that time. And, of course, I knew what a baby's kick was like because mm. I delivered babies. Right. Uh, this wasn't a little thump. It was a kick. And I... Then I only then did I examine her abdomen and realized that she was probably about maybe five months along, and wow. that pregnancy had to be terminated in the hospital. And I I, I go through all that to tell you I, I I was doing this for a year and a half, and it was until then that I it really connected with me that I was ending a life. Wow. Yeah. Um, I I didn't do any more abortions after that, yeah. but I can't say I was pro life. I was confused. Um, what was the moment, Steve, for you that, I mean, that was the defining moment, that that particular abortion when you felt the baby kick against you. Right. Was it was it a definitive after that, I'm done, I can't do this? Was it a realization of all that had, had taken place over the last year and a half? What was that process like for you? Partially so, Will. Partially so. I, I don't. I don't think the spiritual part of it or the sinfulness part of it had sunk in quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the medical side of it. <clears throat> I think I realized that. Gee whiz, maybe this isn't for me, but maybe somebody else can do them. I, I, I can't say I was opposed to abortion at that point. I just knew that was the end of it mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, get any uh, heat from your peers? Well, there are a couple of guys that are still doing abortions out there that I was traveling with, and I just told them I wasn't going to go with them anymore, and that didn't bother them too much. I will say that we were all violating the rules of our residency program then by uh, moonlighting off campus, Mm -hmm. and uh, I had been doing that. And The head of the residency program during uh, a get-together on a a Saturday, we'd have a grand rounds and present cases and he, he at the end of this he pointed to the other two guys that were traveling doing abortions with me um this is probably a month after i had quit 
And uh, he said, I'm, <clears throat> you two boys have been, or you two gentlemen or two, two doctors, two men have been violating the rules of the residency program by doing abortions off campus. And I'm going to put a note in your file, um, you know, a black mark on your residency program. And <clears throat> I was having this check in my spirit because <laughs> I deserve the same punishment. So I, I, I can't, I'll never forget Dr. Tayedo. And he was kind of a crusty guy. He was from Peru. He was a, a cancer specialist there, head of the residency program. And I'll never forget this. I, after that meeting, I, I followed him up to the faculty, up to his office, walked behind him quite a ways to give him a little distance because I didn't know what I was going to say. And I, he, I knocked on his door, walked into his office, and said, Dr. Tayedo, I've been doing the same things that they've been doing, and I deserve the same punishment. Mm. And he looked at me, and he said, I know you're not like them, though. Mm. And uh, he said, I know, that, I know that you were doing them with them. But uh, he said, I, I said, I told him then, I said, but I'm through with that. And he said, well, that's good. Mm. So what that was What kinda, do you think he saw when he said, I know you're I, not like them? I'm not sure, Will. Mm-hmm. Maybe the wrestling, I, I, maybe the conviction. That, I, I, I guess. I, I don't think I shared with them all of the, the background story like I had with you this morning, but mm-hmm. I will say that he was sort of an aloof character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, he um, he invited me to play golf with him and, and invited my wife and I, Paulette and I were married then and back then, and uh, over for dinner one night, and which was really out of character for him. Mm-hmm. So I th- we kind of had a relationship after that, mm-hmm. uh, a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Steve, when did the, the time come? So you, you've come to a place of conviction, and the conviction was more of a from a, from a medical uh, physician's conviction that maybe this is a life. You're feeling this infant kick against you, and mm-hmm. that was the end after that. Um, mm-hmm. When did the, the spiritual uh, reality and conviction come in was it a long process for you yeah it really was uh i i, I can remember really uh being more and more um, um convinced that abortion was wrong not only was it wrong for me to do them but it was wrong for them to be done mm-hmm. and i think this all came to a head um we had two children when we moved to jackson to go into private practice and our third child matthew um um, was born uh, while we were here in practice. And at 26 weeks, which for those of you who don't know, it's 14 weeks prior to the due date, Paulette went into preterm labor. And um, back in 1982, that was, that was tough. That was, there, we didn't have quite the resources we have now to care for the extremely premature babies. Um, and we had to go to Memphis because we didn't even have the neonatal intensive care unit here then. Mm-hmm. And um, we, she, uh, she delivered Matthew in Memphis uh, at 26 weeks. He weighed two pounds and three ounces at birth. And I think that's kind of the first time I'm looking at this thinking, my son's struggling for his life. They're doing everything they can to help him, and there's places – in this country where they're aborting babies that same gestational age. And and I, I think that was the final straw. I think God was 
using all these events in my life mm-hmm. to convince me mm-hmm. uh, of that. And um, so I think it was at that point, and from that point on, 82 up until 89, when I really had a defining time in my life where uh, God was not only um, forgiving me for all I had done through Christ, but that he was Lord of everything. He was Lord of my life completely. And that happened at a particular retreat in 1989. I still remember that. Um, and it was after that, really, Will, that I started um, speaking um, uh, for pro-life mm-hmm. um, publicly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found it uh, helpful that um, I was given a um, an opportunity by God to use that Past my past uh, experiences and and the redemption that I have found mm-hmm. as a platform to stand on, mm-hmm. and that kind of is the backstory to the book. Um, I, that's a that is a, the preface of the book talks about it. Emily Labonte is my co-author of the book, uh, or I'm her co-author, I should mm-hmm. say. It was her inspiration to write the book. Mm-hmm. Um, she is the wife of a pastor of a, a church plant in Las Vegas. Okay. Um, she had her first child here at the Jackson Clinic. Now, I had retired from OB when she had her baby. Mm-hmm. But um, she felt real prompting by the Holy Spirit because she, in Las Vegas, as you can imagine, <clears throat> there are Christians there that were questioning her about abortion and uh, pro-life and all that and, mm-hmm. and being... Uh, antagonistic to mm-hmm. sanctity of life, and she felt a real passion to write a book to the church, to Christians about the sanctity of life. Right, right. So she called the doctor in my practice who had d- delivered her first baby here and said, I-, I need some medical help with writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, would you be willing to help? And he he said, yeah, I can, but my, one of my partners, Steve Hammond, has got a, a story to tell, and mm-hmm might be more helpful than I would. Mm-hmm. So I never had met her. I, didn't, I had never met Emily before, although I will say I did not deliver Emily, but her mother was a patient in her practice. I'm sure I listened to Emily's heartbeat in utero wow. on a prenatal visit at some point years wow. ago. Emily's half my age. Mm. Just had her second baby, by mm. the way. Mm. Um, but anyway, she mm. called me, and we talked a while, and uh, – she she is a nurse practitioner herself, but she said, you know, I, I, there are medical parts of this that I need help with. Right. And um, so I said, well, um, I don't know if you remember, this has been um, five years ago. We did a Sanctity of Life thing at our church that right. uh, Eugene had me in a panel discussion on, on stage. That was uh, available on the website, still is, I guess. And I told Emily, I said... Uh, why don't you watch that and you can kind of hear a little bit about my story and then we can get back together again mm-hmm. and talk about what you want to put in the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she did. She had had this real strong prompting about the Holy Spirit on a Sunday morning to write the book to the point where she said it was almost a physical event that um, she was having. Wow. And uh, and she looked at, my, at this... Uh, thing we did her at fellowship mm-hmm. and she she called me right back and she said you're not going to believe this 
But that day that I had the prompting by the Spirit in a physical way at church, it was exactly the same day that you were doing your um, interview with, with Eugene on stage mm-hmm. there. And she said, would you co-author the book for, with me? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, sure. Mm-hmm. I never thought about putting what I'm what I've told you, putting it down in, in writing before. And certainly English is not my strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> well it is a powerful, powerful book. Well, and I, I think one of the the quotes, Steve, that that has stuck with me, uh, I want to read this. These are your words, but uh, I think it's just so powerful. You say this in the in the intro of the book. So what happened? I went from being a young Christian to a physician well-trained in how to care for human beings who turned his back on his responsibility and ended the lives of more than 700 babies. I could blame the church for not having given me the ammunition to resist the indoctrination I'd received in medical school and residency. I could blame my parents for not saying, we raised you better than that. They didn't say a word against my job of performing abortions. But the truth is, I can only blame myself. I should have been a better student of what the Bible says about the sanctity of human life. I was the one who put those little baby parts back together without flinching after each abortion. I should have had a new heart that listened to the Holy Spirit and resisted the temptation to perform abortions and much less relish in them. Feeling that baby kick in in utero was my wake-up call. It took that incident to bring me to the conclusion that performing an abortion was ending a life regardless of the gestational age. That just, that alone from the very beginning of the book just gripped me. And I think any person reading that from your own experience uh, would would have to wrestle with the implications right. of what you lay out through the book and through your own story. And so the book is laid out in, in a very uh, compelling way medically of when does life begin and what are the implications of this? And 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 so as you have had the opportunity through writing this book. I know that you've had various media um, outlets open up and you've had an opportunity to share this. Um, Have you had any sort of encounters or heard any stories with people that have said, this convinced me? I don't know that I have had anybody say that to me directly, but I have um, actually had well, I'd say take that back. Yes, I have. I've, I've had people that were very antagonistic that over a period of time, um, we walk this thing back in the book. We talk about a newborn is clearly a live human being. Mm-hmm. Well, what about a moment before birth? Mm-hmm. What about, okay, if if that's a, a bridge too far for you, well, where do you draw the line? I mean, you can trace it all the way back. And we we look at all kinds of um, points along the way in a pregnancy, but there's really no other way to f- say that something has happened uh, that's not just a, uh, a matter of form, but really of nature. The, nature doesn't change in the pregnancy from conception on. Right, right. It, it has it, everything that's needed uh, at that point. Absolutely, yes. from conception on. Right. Um, you know, I, I, that... Summary really does summarize what happened, and I would really say to anyone who's struggling with, um, well, I, I, I really don't know how I feel about this, and I've had people talk to me. I've had patients who who said this. Mm-hmm. I really don't know how I feel about this. I mm-hmm. said, well, read the book and right. and check your spirit. Um, yeah. 
it's um, it's it's not a matter of uh, uh, just a concept. Mm-hmm. It's not an abstract concept. It's a reality. Mm-hmm. And if you if you in your heart say, well, I, and this is what so many people say, well, I couldn't have an abortion. I know for me it's wrong. But when you start doing that, you're compromising. Mm-hmm. You're saying that they're not moral absolutes. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's morally wrong for you, it's morally wrong for someone else. Um, if it's morally wrong for me to murder someone on the street with a gun, it's morally wrong for anybody else to do it too. And that's why we have laws. Um, as you know, I look back on this and God's really given me a platform to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, the thing I would really encourage people to do, and, and I used to be softer on this. I, I think that each of us has a besetting sin. We all have some, many of us have more than one mm-hmm. that we've had to deal with in our life. And mm-hmm. this is mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, you and you say in the in the in the book that this is a the the very title of the book this is a non negotiable stance. Correct. I love that title. So speak to that a little bit, Steve. For the Christian, Christian and abortion, this is a non negotiable stance. Right. And everybody tries to tries to have a middle ground yes. or or a compromise on uh, as a Christian. And I point out in the in the introduction that this book is written for Christians. I know there would be non-Christians who would disagree with my stance on this. And I invite them, I, I present the gospel in the, in the prelude, mm-hmm. and I say, if, if you want to debate me, we need to be on the same playing field because as a Christian, we understand what the sanctity of life is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, would, I would just encourage people to use the gifts that God's given them. You know, in Matthew 25, he talks about the parable of the talents. We often think of those as spiritual gifts that we get when we're saved, but through redemption, God can use the past, even the things that you regret in your life, to give you a platform to stand on, to use for the furthering of his kingdom. And, you know, a, a woman who's had an abortion who has been redeemed and has has worked their way through that is the best counselor for other women struggling right. with this decision. Because it doesn't become a, um, a political issue. Exactly. It becomes a human issue and a moral issue. Steve, moving mm-hmm. forward as, as our listeners uh, are engaging this podcast, just from your own experience, um, how how do we... How do we not? How do we move this out of a political conversation to actually a moral conversation? Well, uh, I, I think that um, you know, for people who are not Christians, they still have to believe in a in morality, mm-hmm. and if you believe in things that are morally right or morally wrong, and if you think there's good versus evil. Mm-hmm then you have to say, well, where does that decision come from? It comes from a creator. And so if there are a truly right and wrong things, this is from a reason standpoint, mm-hmm. truly right and wrong, then I think we have to engage on this level of understanding is abortion right or wrong. Right. Um, there are those that would probably want to, again, um, nuance it yeah, and, 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 well, let's talk about the gray and... 
Yeah, we talk about things like a woman's health mm-hmm. and the life of the mother and uh, those kinds of issues, and those are really um, uh, distractions from the truth. I, I, I mean, I practiced medicine for 41 years, and I've dealt with the consequences of abortion, and I can tell you that uh, abortion does not improve a woman's health. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may get her all out of a prickly situation, mm-hmm. In a moment in time, but the price that's paid is huge uh, emotionally. Uh, and, you- and they don't talk about that. No, we don't hear. We don't hear the, the when the debate becomes a political debate of well, this is a woman's right to choose. Yeah, you know, and and so I, I I've even heard um, those that would maybe support Planned Parenthood that would at least give a concession. Okay, we do we do agree that this is a human life. Uh-huh. And yet, uh-huh. we still, a woman has a right to do whatever she wants to do with her body. Well, the, the, the uh, abortionists, I have <clears throat> read some abortionists who, who are honest. The honest ones will tell you it's the ending of a human life, but, but. but uh, it's a woman's right to choose. This is a medical procedure that is legal, and it, there's, there's that position. Uh, it's hard to defend that one person has the right to end the life of another person, and that's basically what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't mean to <clears throat> please. I hope people don't misunderstand me. I understand that there are really difficult situations. That, uh, we human beings get ourselves into some very difficult situations, and um, an, a, a pregnancy that happens at a time where it's difficult and it. And and uh, is is I'm not soft selling that. That is, but there are there is help, there is support um, for the, for those situations. Mm-hmm. That abortion is not the only answer. Mm-hmm. And we when we use the word choice, we always use it in the context of choice to end a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Are you really given a choice, mm-hmm. or are you just basically told this is the way out and this is what you need to do, and that's really what happens. I've been on the counseling end of abortion, and I can tell you that's kind of the way it's it's sold. It's a this is it's, it's not a choice. We're not telling you the other side. What else can be done? And um, we're not talking about the implications and the long term mm-hmm. damage and the, right. the the effects and the impact. And yeah. yeah. Right. So, so how can uh, how how can the church be better equipped to continue to fight this battle? Because speak to this, Steve. The, the individual says, "Oh, you Christians are just a one issue group. It's it's your it's your one issue. You can't think of anything else." Well, <clears throat> I think we're getting back into the politics and the mm-hmm. and uh, um, that sort of. That side of things, when we when we uh, stoop to that kind of discussion, certainly the church has an obligation to care for the least of these and for those uh, women that are in, uh, in tough situations, women and men. I mean, there are uh, situations that occur that are tough, and we we probably need to take up a, a stronger, more bo- a bolder stand uh, for helping. Um, and we do support Birth Choice. Right, Birth Choice is a incredible organization ministry. here in town. They do wonderful work of mm-hmm. both helping provide a true choice, 
and, and ultrasound to show a woman what's really going on mm-hmm. um, in the womb to helping women who have already made unfortunate choice and struggling emotionally mm-hmm. with post-abortion syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So those, those kind of things, I think counseling, helping, um, because I, I really truly believe a woman who has gone through this, who's, who's, who struggled emotionally with, with the struggles of, of, of having had an abortion, who's, realizes the only answer and the only answer to those situations is not secular counseling it's Jesus Christ mm-hmm. because only he can meet you where you are and only he offers true redemption forgiveness mm-hmm. and um, once you've come to that conclusion once you've come to that place uh you, you're, you've been set. You have been given a gift at that point to be able to counsel other women that are going through mm-hmm. this and speak to them because you speak to them right at their at, at their place. Yeah. And so you're touching on that right now, and that's a question I had for you. I mean, we we know probably within our church, uh, we know that there's probably a, a segment of of women who have who have had an abortion, right? And maybe not never told anyone from your own life and experience and understanding of the gospel and grace, how would you speak to them? Well, the statistics are one in four women have had an abortion. Mm. Now, maybe in the, our area and our church, maybe it's a little less than that, but that's still quite a, quite a number. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if you, if you're struggling with this, a lot of times the pain and the hurt are suppressed um, and then it's like PTSD, things rise to the surface from time to time. And maybe hearing this podcast has done that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a matter of uh, confession. Uh, I found myself when I was faced with my abortion sin, knowing that Christ was the answer was a real blessing for me because I could go straight to the cross and, and, and repent mm-hmm. at that point. Know that that's not held over you. Exactly. You're not defined by that. God doesn't look at you and say, Steve Hammond, abortionist. Right. That's says, exactly right. says, Steve yeah. Hammond, my son. Right. And, and my <clears throat> death and resurrection has covered the price, the penalty to pay for that. Um, you know, Revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth, and, and he's going to dry every tear from your eye. And I've thought about this a lot, that there are 700 babies that I've ended the life of and sent to heaven prematurely. Um, if the, the memory of that is not going to be blotted out, but how can it not be something that brings a tear to my eye, even in heaven? So it, there has to be, I can I struggle with this, there has to be a reunion, there has to be those 700 babies are going to come to me and say, mm. our death was not in vain wow. because you have proclaimed life and you have used that experience and our lives were not in vain. And I know that's going to happen. Wow. And and I think if a woman has, a, has aborted a baby and is, is concerned about that, she needs to say, if she's a true believer, first of all, repent. Christ is the answer. He covers your sin with his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. 
and you're going to be reunited with the with that child yeah. someday. Yeah. And that should give you that. That's a promise mm-hmm. that I think Scripture is. Like mm-hmm. I said, if the tear is not wiped away, um, then the Bible's wrong. So the tear is wiped away. The memory is not wiped away, but the tear is wiped away. So there's there's um, there's there's that hope. I think. Mm-hmm. I love that image of. The Bible gives us the picture of the restoration of all things, mm-hmm. the new heavens and the new earth. All that you've lost will will be restored. Absolutely. And I love that picture of all of the life um, will, th- those babies, that there will be a restoration and and there will be that final restoration of, you know, you, your life was not in vain. Exactly. That you use this platform to touch so many people and... Um, and you have a unique perspective and a unique story based on your own reality, and you've used that as an incredible platform. Well, uh, you know, it's something that God has given me. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I look back and say, don't you regret having done that? Sure, I do. Right. But um, on the other hand, I couldn't have done all this. I couldn't have. I couldn't be here speaking to you today on a subject that's very important and something we need to, as a church, we need to be involved in mm-hmm. uh, like I can because God has allowed me to go through that. But then on the other flip side of that, he's redeemed me as well. Yes, what a picture. A picture of his grace and his mm-hmm. mercy. Uh, Steve, I so appreciate uh, you and your story. And um, I pray that this that this podcast will be something that... Um, Others will will engage. It's pretty amazing. There are people that with with technology, the way it's uh, social media and the way it's shared. Who knows who will listen to this yeah. and okay. and bring great great hope to people. Uh, Steve, you've encouraged me uh, in my faith. I love seeing Christ in you, uh, seeing redemption played out through uh, your life and your your story. And so, thank you for. Thank you for fighting this fight. Thank you for using your life uh, to leverage for kingdom purposes. Well, thank you for having me, Will. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today on the Story Form podcast. For more information about Fellowship Bible Church in Jackson, you can visit us at fellowshipjackson.com. Join us next time as we enter into the story of others together.